outing of John, but we'll probably get into that next week. Uh, the detaining of John was what led to the doubting of John. Uh, trouble came, and then he had a momentary uh, season of doubt. Well, let's read here Luke chapter 3. We'll look at verse 19 and 20. The Bible says, But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Father, I pray tonight you'd help us as we look at uh, some of the uh, key points of John's life, what we can learn from him. And Lord, may we be uh, encouraged and challenged from this uh, passage of Scripture and others we look at. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it was a dark day when the soldiers of Herod came and arrested John and hauled him off to prison. Now, you look at the prompting of the imprisonment. Luke chapter 3 here tells us why he arrested him. Uh, he was, uh, John dared preach against the immorality of Herod's marriage to his brother Philip's wife. Now, there's not many details about the arrest. We even see more details about Jesus' arrest than about John's, but we do know why he was arrested. Uh, John was imprisoned because he preached against Herod's sins. Mark chapter 6, verse 20 records that there were times when Herod, uh, as the Bible says, quote, heard him gladly. Uh, so Herod actually enjoyed John's preaching. Uh, the the uh, spiritually empowered preaching of John the Baptist uh, drew and attracted Herod to it, as it does many people. A lot of people, I'd say most people probably enjoy uh, good, uh, empowered, spirit-filled preaching. But there is a caveat to this. Uh, often it's all fine and good until toes are stepped on. When John started preaching against Herod's sin, then Herod got upset. Now it's great when you hear preaching, uh, when the Word of God is opened up and made alive. Don't you enjoy that when you hear a, a preacher who just can make the Word uh, a story or an account in Scripture just become alive to you? I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of dull, dead, unpassionate, if that's a word, preaching. I like... Uh, I like people that believe what they preach. I don't like lectures. I like preaching. I like what Abraham Lincoln said, uh, that he liked uh, the type of when a preacher looked like he was fighting off a swarm of bees. And uh, I like that too. But when it begins to indict people, that's when it all turns south. That's when people, when they hear things that convict them. You see, we have an option to do one of two things when we hear preaching against our sin, and that is, we can repent from that sin, or we can get angry about the person that delivers the message. David heard preaching from the prophet Nathan. David repented when Nathan pointed at him and said, Thou art the man. Well, Herod did not act that way. Herod got angry. John preached against many things. I've, I've no doubt that Herod would be sitting in the crowd and probably have kind of a half smile on his face as John is railing against drunkenness and all these different sins he's preaching against. But then he preached about Herod's sin. Then he got personal, and this made Herod angry. Mark 16 says, For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John, and bound him in prison for Herodias', Herodias sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. This was over the line. You can't tell me what to do, was Herod's response to the preaching here of the word of God. And this got John thrown into prison. John's arrest tells us two things here, the hostility to this preaching. Can I tell you that even today, the world is hostile 
to one who dares denounce its evils. It is always risky to take a stand for right against evil in this world. You know, if you've ever taken a stand at work, uh, you've probably dealt with this a time or two. You've taken a stand alone for right amongst other friends who do not. And you know what sometimes that can cost us. Uh, preaching against sin uh, is especially dangerous, especially in a day like John lived in. A preacher who dares to denounce the sins of the day opens himself up to the wrath of wicked men. They will criticize him. They'll accuse him, uh, anyone who preaches against sin, of lacking love. I think that's probably the favorite accusation of uh, the world today to preachers that preach the Word of God. They don't have love. Wicked people, sinful people, who pose as pious churchgoers cannot stand when the light of holiness shines on their pet sins. That's what happened to Herod, and he got angry about it. Their reaction then is most often to attack the messenger, not the message. Because after all, if a preacher is preaching the Word of God, it's really hard to get any support in attacking the message that comes from the Word of God, and so people typically go after the messenger. Uh, they, they'll uh, offer slander, innuendo, other assaults so that they can undermine the message. And this is what happened here to John the Baptist. You don't only see the, uh, uh, the, 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 the part of his preaching, what did I say, the hostility to his preaching, but the honesty in his preaching. John is charging Herod uh, for sins and uh, preaching the straight message. It tells us that John was no respecter of persons. He was an honest preacher. He was not two-faced. Remember, in the day that John came, uh, the religious leaders were two-faced, hypocritical, uh, selfish, prideful. John was an honest preacher. He did not go hard on the common people and then easy on the high class, which was rampant in that day, and I say it's probably still rampant today. No, John was a man of God who proclaimed the truth regardless of who was in his audience. I can imagine, I, 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 this isn't exactly in the Bible this way, this is just something in my mind, but I can imagine the day, maybe uh, the times that Herod showed up to hear John preach, because the Bible says that John, Herod Heard John gladly sometimes. So, But can you imagine when they're setting up for the service and some of John's disciples come to him and say, Hey, John, be careful because today Herod's here. Uh, Herod's in the crowd. You might want to tone it down just a little bit. You want to be careful what you say. Well, we know what John did. He got up, rolled up his sleeves, and let go both barrels. And he wasn't going to hold back because of who was in the crowd. Unfortunately, this is a very rare thing even in today's day and age too. There's a tremendous Tremendous temptation to tone down the message to attract the rich and the powerful and the influential people. You know, to attract people like Tyler Perry and Oprah Winfrey, uh, Mr. Osteen has to water down his message. He does not preach against sin. He does not preach the whole counsel of God. Oprah Winfrey said this, and I quote, There are many paths to what you call God. There couldn't possibly be just one way, end quote. My Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but through me, and that's one way. Now, if Oprah Winfrey sits in your church and you, hear, and you preach the gospel barrel straight, then either she's going to leave or you're going to leave. One of the two is going to happen, but you can't coexist is, is my point. Now, these type of preachers might be popular. 
Uh, they, most people might even say they're successful. But a pastor who does not love his people enough to preach against the very things that will destroy their life, God help a church with such a leader. And praise God for John the Baptist. He preached the word as it was and did not mince words and he did not, was not a respecter of persons. And I'm certain that most churches <laughs> today, I heard one preacher say years ago that there's not five churches in America that could handle John the Baptist preaching. And uh, I, I have to think that there's probably not that many that could. And look at the place of imprisonment too. The prison where John was, a part of the Macherius complex that was built by Herod the Great, he was confined in a small, uh, dark dungeon, and it would be hard for anyone, but imagine a man like John the Baptist, living in the desert, out in the open air, uh, used to freedom of movement, the fresh air, the sun. This was absolute inhumane treatment for him uh, above all people. Now, even though he was in prison, uh, he could, this doesn't mean he didn't have visitors. He, his disciples could come and see him. The Bible talks about messages going back and forth from him to Jesus. He was permitted to see some of his disciples at times. And, and I think that's such a blessing that he had loyal disciples like that. Uh, understand that coming to visit John would be a big danger to them. They would be risking their reputation, maybe even their own freedom. The religious uh, leaders and their crowd would not appreciate their loyalty. The elite of society would look down on them politically, socially, religiously. They were risking their good name to come see John, and they did it anyway. They did for John what Paul's faithful followers did for him when he was in prison. 2 Timothy 1.16, they oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. I really believe that God will greatly reward those who are loyal to God's faithful servants during the bad times. Those who stand with their pastor when their church is under attack. Uh, those who stand or get behind a Christian leader when the world disparages them. I'm talking about faithful servants of God. I believe that God rewards that, and I'm thankful for these uh, disciples that were an encouragement to John. And then we look at the perspective of the imprisonment. Uh, because it's, a, it's kind of a test of our faith when we see a person like John the Baptist put into prison and eventually beheaded. How could a wicked, immoral man and woman put a stop to a great man like John the Baptist? Today, we see often a few disgruntled, bitter people and can split a church and destroy a ministry. It doesn't seem right, yet we see it happen. I saw firsthand a, a church that I had involvement in in Michigan, thriving church, a growing church, and it only took one man who was bitter and used of the devil to come in and, and cause all kinds of dissension, and that church uh, has, is just a shell of its former self even to this day. And we see that, and we wonder, where is God in all this? The unfairness of the situation, it puzzles the mind of the godly. Here you have wicked Herod and Herodias in the lap of luxury while John the Baptist rots in prison. Uh, it's the inconsistency that the psalmist sees in Psalm 73, that Habakkuk sees in Habakkuk 1. Why do the wicked prosper? You ever asked yourself that question? It's always been like this in the world. Righteousness is scoffed and even punished while the wicked live the high life. Joseph is in prison in Egypt. Jeremiah is in the miry pit. Daniel is in the den of lions. 
Christ is on the cross. The apostles are beaten and in jail often. Uh, countless Christians have, were put in prison and martyred. Even to this day, actually, uh, pr- Christians are imprisoned and, and martyred. We tend to come up, when we see that, when we consider this, we tend to come up with one of two explanations for this type of situation. Either God failed or John the Baptist failed. But neither of these are true. Certainly God did not fail. We're quick to look at what we perceive to be failure. In other words, we think that if there is success or a, if there is not success, there's a, a, as we define success, then God has failed. In the face of extreme injustice, we seem to think God has lost control. In the face of prolonged suffering, and I've heard this, we feel that God has forgotten me. You see, the natural inclination for us, and I'm just talking humanly speaking, is that we think if God is really powerful, and if God really loves us, then he wouldn't let bad things happen. But the Bible never encourages us to think this way. The trials of God's people often results in increased blessings later on and a much greater impact in their life. Joseph went through a terrible time in his life, but it worked out wonderfully for him in the end. Daniel's imprisonment brought great glory to God at the end of that story. Christ's crucifixion, the greatest of all tragedies, is, makes it possible for us to be saved as sinners. There are many lessons in our life that we cannot learn unless we go through trials and tribulation. So when these troubles and these trials come, never, ever make the mistake of concluding that God has lost control or, you know, even through this virus nonsense that we're going through, uh, that, that thinking that God has, where's God at? Or has he lost control? No, God is in control. He still cares. Time will show us that God is in control. And that's the key to it right there. It's time. It takes faith during the trial to see the positive. It takes time to see the result. And often we can, you can do the same in your life. You can look back at times that you thought were the worst in your life, and now you can see how they developed you or how God brought about great blessing into your life because of it. But it takes time. And during it, it takes faith. And so let's have the faith during a hard time that God will bring it about to be uh, good in the end. We have the promise of Scripture all throughout the Word of God. Romans 8, 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to those that are called according to His purpose. James 1.12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love Him. We have a lot of promises in the Bible to encourage our faith during difficult times. Now, God had His reason for John's imprisonment. Many of those reasons we won't know until eternity. But even so, we can learn some valuable lessons concerning our doubts and how to deal with them. Lessons that we'll see later uh, in this story, probably actually next week when we'll get to it. But God has not failed, the point I'm making. God didn't fail in this story. And John the Baptist did not fail either. Now, if we're to view John the Baptist's situation in the light of the prosperity preaching of today, we'd have to conclude that John failed. Because they tell us that when we do right, then and we live right, then we will be successful. Wildly so. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God rejected John. In fact, Jesus had the highest praise for John. But the success 
formula, if you want to call it that, of these prosperity preachers of today, they leave out a lot of facts in their preaching. Noah, preaching for a hundred plus years and getting only eight on the ark. The stoning of godly, faithful Naboth. Uh, The imprisonment and living on bread and water for the prophet Micaiah. The habitual rejection of the Old Testament prophets. The martyrdom of countless saints all throughout uh, in the early church all the way to today. The thinking that a Christian, if he is in a place of rejection or a place of trouble, that he must be a failure is not biblical and we can't think this way. We have got to accept that as God's children, his picture is always bigger than ours. And often the consequence of godly living, not only in spite of, but the consequence of godly living is hardship. We see that all throughout the Bible, and it will be for us sometimes. Is it fair? Certainly doesn't seem so. Will God work it out in the end? Absolutely. He always does. Look at the penalty for the imprisonment. We see in Matthew that an attack on God's faithful servants carries with it a price that society has to pay. Matthew 4.12 Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed unto Galilee. The word that's translated departed is used ten times in Matthew. I find that interesting. doesn't really have to have a big to do with the point, but I found that interesting. It means literally to withdraw. So the arrest of John took place in Jerusalem and Judea. Jesus, who was in that area... Because of the arrest of John, moved to another area as a precautionary measure. Now, of course, we know Herod can't touch Jesus if Jesus didn't want him to, but throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, you see that Jesus did not use miraculous powers to protect his ministry when human means would do the job. And so uh, he he went to Galilee. Now, Herod still ruled there, but it was out of the area of of, uh, where Herod, Herod, I keep saying Herod, where Herod was the most active, and so it was a safer area. You could say that Jerusalem and Judea were penalized, taking from them the greatest blessing of their day, that is Jesus' presence. And in this we see a principle that is still true today. You can see in the Bible, and you can see in our society, that God does not force himself on anyone. But when he is removed from any institution, church, family, nation, that, they, that that church, family, nation, institution, person will receive or will suffer great loss. When God's servants are not respected, the blessing of God will not abide there. He'll be forced to leave one way or another. Gradually, since the 1960s, America has been turning her back on God. In June 25, 1962, the United States Supreme Court called prayer in schools unconstitutional. Immediately following that, teen pregnancy skyrocketed 500%. Starting in 1963, the year after that, the SAT scores plummeted for 18 consecutive years. Think about that. Remove prayer from schools, And the graph for the ACT score is just straight down for 18 years. Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And oh, we have 
reaped, we have paid for it. Between 1840 and 1960, there was never more than 14 deaths per decade by firearm in America. Not long after the 1962 Supreme Court rulings, school shootings started to be on the rise. In the last decade, over 160 have died that way. You can't tell me that these things aren't related. You remove God from an institution or, a, a, or any type of, <coughs> of country, nation, church, family, whatever it is, you remove God, the blessing is removed. God will not be mocked. We cannot uh, thumb our proverbial nose at him and then go our own way, do our own thing, and expect ourselves to be successful. Who's to blame? Uh, I say we are to blame turning our back on God. I'm simply saying that when we choose as a society to remove God, then uh, we will suffer for it. They arrested John. They disrespected God's messenger. Jesus moved into another area, thereby removing what could have been a tremendous impact that he could have had at that time. Arrest John the Baptist and Christ will go elsewhere. The problem is it'll cost so much more than we think we'll have to pay. Great lesson for us to learn. Keep God in your home. Keep God in your church. Keep God in, your, uh, in our schools would be a blessing for us too, and so on and so forth. And then we come to the doubting by John. One of the things I appreciate about the Bible is its brutal honesty. We're not reading about superheroes that have no problems. We're not reading about perfect people. We are reading about people just like you and me, red-blooded, sinful, uh, subject to failure. When the heroes of the Bible are written about, there is an honesty in those accounts. The Bible faithfully records the failures of our heroes as well as their successes. The lies of Abraham and Isaac. Moses losing his temper, which cost him the promised land. The adultery and murder uh, by David. The juniper tree experience of Elijah. The denials of Peter. And we could go on and on and on. As much as we may wish that our Bible heroes did not have any black marks on them, they did. And they do. And guess what? They're just like you. And they're just like me. They're people. They messed up. They experienced failure. I don't know if I'm different than you are maybe, but that encourages me. It encourages me to know that uh, somebody as great as them, if they can fail so spectacularly like Peter did and then move to do great things for God thereafter, that encourages me. I'm glad that God uses imperfect people. That means He can use me and that means He can use you. I say all this to introduce us to the failure of John the Baptist's faith. A great man as he was, the Bible records a time when he had some doubts about Jesus Christ. They were short-lived, but it may surprise us. Is this the same John the Baptist who stood so courageously against sin? Is this the great John the Baptist who faithfully pointed people to Jesus Christ? Yes, it is the same man. God's greatest servants in the Bible had also some big black marks in their ministry sometimes. And so the Bible records, I believe, this experience for our learning. Because we may think that great men are above doubt, but some of the greatest Christians in our day, any day, had great uh, seasons of doubt and discouragement. It doesn't make it right, 
but it, it, we can learn from them. Doubt is not common to the ordinary person. It's also a frequent visitor to great men. And we'll look next week at the how and why of John's doubt. You don't want to miss it. Uh, I'm excited about that message. In fact, I, uh, I, I, th- I thought about putting them both together tonight, but that has such a great message in and of itself. We'll save it for next week. And, uh, but it is an encouragement as we look at the as we look at such a great man as John, and he did, we can't, I'm not at all beating him up on him uh, for his doubt. Uh, he, he certainly was a much better man than I can ever hope to be, but, but uh, we can learn from it, and that's the reason these things are in the Bible. So uh, let's look at that next week. In the meantime, I want to encourage you, uh, as John was, to uh, be faithful to the Word of God. I hope that you are faithfully in your Bible every day and faithful in prayer. And uh, just as a form of announcement, you might have uh, got the email already, and and we sent some letters out today for those of you who aren't on the email chain, but we will plan to open our church on Sunday, so I'm excited to see you back here. It'll be be a little bit restricted. I laid that out in the email, so if you need a copy of that, just give me a call. Uh, But I certainly am am excited to see some folks back here on Sunday, and uh, that way... I'm not just looking at pictures here in the pews of you. I see you uh, in in person, so I'm I'm grateful for that. But let's close in prayer tonight. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for those that are here, and let's uh, ask God to bless. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for uh, these examples in Scripture. We can see great faithfulness in John, and then we see a time that he wasn't uh, so sure, and and we saw him be discouraged a little bit. I, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us not to excuse our own weaknesses, Lord, but to learn how we can guard against these things in our life. Father, I pray you'd help us throughout the rest of this week. And as we look to gather on Sunday, I pray that you give us safety. And Lord, may we uh, be encouraging to one another. I'm so excited about seeing our church family gathered again. Help us as we go forward to honor you in all that we do and say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.